Are you a mom launching kids into adulthood? If so, you need to know about my Empty Nest Mom Retreat. It is the gathering for moms who have at least one child over the age of 18 or who have launched them all and have a full empty nest. September 27th through the 29th are the dates, and Cedar Lake Retreat Center in Cedar Lake, Indiana is the place. You can fly into Chicago airports and drive to Cedar Lake in a little over an hour. Come join me. Best Value Registration is available through May 27th, and space is limited to just 100 moms, so don't delay. Check out jillsavage.org slash retreat to register today. Often when we are dealing with grief, we expect that grief to get smaller. The grief, let's say, stays the same size. Grief cannot necessarily be measured, but if it's represented by a ball, it stays the same size. It's the size of an orange. And I keep thinking it's going to shrink to like a ping pong ball size. Instead, it stays the size of the orange. What actually grows is me. You're listening to the No More Perfect Podcast, where we talk about strengthening the relationships that mean the most to you. I'm Jill Savage, and I live in normal Illinois. I'm committed to talking honestly about the messy, less than perfect, but normal stuff of life. I'm so glad you've joined me. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the No More Perfect Podcast. You know, if you've been hanging around here for any length of time, you know that we often talk about restored marriages in this space, and that's because my husband and I have that story. However, restoring a marriage takes two willing people, and if there's only one willing person, it's possible the marriage will end in an unwanted divorce. My guest understands this reality. 2016 was the year that Brandy Wilson's husband, a mega church pastor, walked away from the church and their family. And as her 20-year marriage dissolved, Brandy also lost her church community, her dreams for the future, and a huge part of her identity. She and her three boys began a new journey marked by deep grief and suffering, but also hope and freedom, boldness and peace. And today, Brandy thanks God for the redemptive healing in her life and reassures other newly single women that they're not alone and that divorce is not the end of their story. Brandy is an author, a coach, a speaker who's been in leadership for more than a decade at Leading and Loving It, a nonprofit created to empower women to love life and ministry. Her latest book is Better Than Okay, Finding Hope and Healing After Your Marriage Ends. Brandy lives with her three sons in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the No More Perfect Podcast, Brandy. Jill, thanks so much for having me with you today. Oh, absolutely. You know, it is a little bit of different content than what I often have, but I think it's important for us to have this conversation for actually for three reasons. One is not everybody has a spouse who's willing to do the work. And I want to provide resources for people who have a different ending to their story than I did. And secondly, my daughter 
is a attendee of Leading and Loving It. You guys do a conference every year. I know she's been a part of your small groups. Um, my daughter is a pastor's wife, and I know that you guys minister to a lot of pastor's wives. And she told me that you really handled this situation with incredible integrity. So mm-hmm. that was the second reason. And the third reason, I read the book, and it's excellent. You did. <laughs> you did. You did. You did. You that. You really did a nice job. And so I just, uh, yeah, I was like, we have to have this conversation because I know in the the work that my husband and I do, we work with a lot of women and men who are standing for their marriages. They're believing for their marriages. And sometimes they experience a U-turn like we did and a restoration, and sometimes they don't, and they have to have the resources. So I'm so glad for this book. I've already recommended it to several people. And so um, I really appreciate it. And to start us, um, I want to read something that you wrote in the introduction of the book. You said... This book isn't about what happened to my marriage, but about who I have grown into. This book isn't about what I lost, but what I found. This book isn't about what was taken from me, but what remains. Better than okay is a life where you're not the victim, but the victor. I love that. So... Tell us why. I mean, this is a very personal journey. Um, I, you know, you don't write a book like this without going back and reliving the pain. So talk about why you felt like writing this book now was important for you. Yeah, I think um, I was very conscious of how I handled this situation in regards to how it would impact my kids. Um, my kids were a lot younger at the time. They were like 14, um, 11 and nine when they started feeling the impacts of in the home, um, which we know when something publicly falls apart, it's been falling apart behind the scenes for a while. So they were young, um, when they started feeling the rumbles of the situation unfolding. Um, and I wanted to be very just, um, careful in telling the story because it's also their story as well. And I think the other piece of that is I wanted to be super conscious that I was writing out of my scars and not my wounds. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, because the situation was pretty ugly and behind the scenes, um, a lot of people, wanted me to speak out of my wounds and God was really gracious to protect my voice. And I think with God choosing to do something new in me when I chose to begin again, well, that is the hope that I wanted other people to feel Mm -hmm. in the midst of walking through their marriage ending, infidelity, betrayal, uh, manipulation, divorce, whatever that looks like. I wanted to be able to provide hope and healing and not just like stir the pot. Everybody has, you know, hurt, but how can we find hope in the midst of walking through that pain in order to continue to keep going? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you did that well. Let me tell you, um, I really felt like you did that very, very well. So paint the picture for people that don't know you, uh, paint Mm -hmm. the picture of what your life looked like before the bomb went off. Yeah. And, um, and, and really 
how that affected you, you, you know, and, and what, what did you lose? Uh, what did you lose immediately? What did you lose more gradually? Yeah. Um, so I married my college sweetheart right out of college. We planted a church in Kentucky. We were there at that church for a little over five years and then um, moved to Nashville in 2001, um, had our first child. And in 2002, we started Cross Point Church, which is, you said, ended up being um, a massive church, uh, was the fastest, one of the fastest growing churches in the nation at the time. And the ministry in the church had just exploded. Um, we had multiple campuses across Middle Tennessee. Um, my husband at the time, he had written a couple of books. He traveled a ton speaking. Um, and I was super involved in all of that. We ended up having three sons. Um, and at, while I was doing leading and loving it, I also served at a really high capacity at cross point. I was there volunteering. I was there on Tuesdays for staff meeting. I officed out of there, um, on Tuesdays to do leading and loving it stuff. Um, I, fully engaged in community with the staff. I Those are the people I had in my house on Friday nights for dinner. We had babies together. I taught moms groups, um, was there for almost all the services on the weekend um, with the kids. The kids served a service. They attended a service. So, you know, we were just, that was our community. It's who we did life with. It's who came to birthday parties, um, who we shared holidays with, we vacationed with. Um, it was it was not just our church. It was definitely our, our life as well. Mm -hmm. I loved that. I loved being a pastor's wife. I loved my role and kind of being like the head cheerleader um, of the church. And I loved hosting and having people over and investing in people's lives and um, just being super attentive and caring. I'm a nurturer by trade. So I could kind of, you know, uh, definitely do that with the people who were serving underneath us. Um, and then, as you said, in September of 2016, in what felt like the flip of a coin, my husband at the time resigned very, very suddenly. Um, and it, it was tough because it was so public. It was on the local news channels. It was um, on the cover of the Tennessean. It was written about on blog posts. People, you know, Twittered about it, like. It, it just felt like it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it had been falling apart behind the scenes for a long time. And when it falls apart publicly and you feel like everyone's watching you, there's just so much shame and embarrassment and hurt. And Jill, at the same time, even though I was, I suspected what was going on, I didn't have any really hard, fast evidence and no one, no did, no one else did either. So, um, there were just a lot of questions without answers. Mm. So I would say immediately, I definitely lost, you know, that role that I had loved serving in. Mm. Um, I lost the community that I had done life with. I went from being surrounded by thousands of people every weekend to just talking to three people and my therapist. Um, I lost the security of being, you know, part of something that... I knew was an honor to be part of as far as the local church. Um, and I lost a lot of, I'm not going to say I lost friendships. I think before the announcement was made, I had by my ex-husband already strategically been isolated um, because when multiple stories are being told, you can't let all those people get together or 
the truth's going to start to come to the surface. So I had already been strategically isolated. I think um, I probably, as things went on and truth began to surface, that was probably my main prayer was truth in the midst of all of that, because I'd been looking for it and wasn't able to find the full truth. Um, As truth began to surface, I think I, you know, I honestly personally lost hope of Mm. what my life was going to look like, how my family was going to turn out, um, what kind of story my kids would tell about their childhood and about Mm. their relationship to the church and God. Um, And it was a really dark, hopeless time in my life. Yeah, I'm sure. So you mentioned there about uh, your counselor. Mm-hmm. Were you already in counseling or did you find the counseling after this happened? Um, so I've done both. I had been in counseling on my own um, with a great therapist a couple of years before all of this happened, just trying to deal with some you know, childhood stuff and some mm-hmm. bad patterns that we get into. Um, we had also started joint marriage counseling. That marriage counselor ended up sending me to his wife, who's also a therapist, licensed therapist. So I saw her individually. My ex-husband saw him individually. And then together we met with um, him. So we did, you know, that would have been three sessions a week, one for me, one for him, one for us. Um, So it was pretty intense. And I, I was so dedicated to my marriage and my husband that I'm like, I'll show up for counseling every day for five years, if that's what it takes Mm -hmm. to make this work. Um, But as you said, in your introduction, reconciliation, restoration takes two people working toward that. And I was the only one in my marriage who wanted to see that. Yeah. 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 And at what point, uh, talk about where you had to come face to face with that reality, Mm -hmm. because you, you were in essence standing for your marriage. You were believing for it. You're doing, Hey, we can, we can get past this, but obviously at some point you had to accept reality. Do you remember when that was? I do. I do remember when that was. Um, I recognized it during a counseling session. Um, that it was one of the last, if not the last counseling session we did together. And Jill, I will tell you, I feel honestly like God gave my ex-husband the ability to be truthful. And he started at the beginning of our marriage and kind of laid out everything that had happened. And at that point, when I realized there was a pattern Mm-hmm. of trust being broken in my marriage and that the person that I loved was not the person I thought he was. I knew it was over. I knew that I was going to have to accept and I was going to move forward. Um, and I didn't know what it was look like, look, would look like. I felt totally damaged. Um, but I do remember thinking, I am damaged. I'm not destroyed. I am damaged. I'm mm-hmm. not destroyed. I will be able to come out of this, but I had no clue what that looked like. Right. It was just, yeah, it was, it was very hard for me to accept. Um, It is not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And now I will say, you know, six and a half years post, I wouldn't change where I am today and what I've been through, but man, in the midst of it, it was, it was really horrific to live through. Yeah. I remember when I was, um, you know, going through my dark season, I, there was a, 
uh, I had heard Jennifer Rothschild speak and she had made a statement. Uh, re- she was referring to her blindness, but she had said, it is not well with my circumstances, but it is well with my soul. Mm. And that became a prayer of mine. Yeah. Lord, it is not well with my circumstances, but I am determined that it will be well with my soul. And and that became really my my goal yeah. was um, just to find my stability and my foundation in the Lord. And, you know, whether I was going to experience at that point, I didn't know if I would experience restoration or whether I was going to be uh, having to uh, walk through a new normal mm-hmm. uh, as you had to. But that became my goal. And counseling was a big part of that journey. So oh, I'm, I think it has to be. I agree. I absolutely agree. Talk a little bit about, you know, it's not easy in the church. Um, we have pastors wise, we have pastors that listen to the podcast. What do church leaders need to understand um, about destructive marriages, about uh, divorce, about even supporting people that are going through difficult situations? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a great question. I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday morning of a a friend of mine who had just relaunched a podcast and she was talking about dark seasons of life. And, and she was like, and she was given scenarios of maybe it's, you've had to, you know, bury a parent, maybe you've, and she went through all these scenarios and she said, maybe you're in the process of a divorce. And I think, man, just hearing leaders use the term divorce on stage or podcast messages really helps you feel like you're not um you're not just the black sheep who showed up at church that Sunday. I think there's so mm. much shame that comes with divorce. I started noticing as I began to talk to more divorced women just because of what I do, I run across a lot of divorced women who are referred to me. Um, that when they start talking about their life, when they get to the point that they're telling the part about their divorce, usually their voice drops to more of a whisper, like I got divorced mm-hmm. three years ago, and then they'll come back up to a regular um, level of sound. But there's just so much shame attached that I think anything we can do to help divorced people feel like they are welcome and supposed to be there. So if it's mentioning it from stage, it's um, allowing them to serve. It is making sure that you see that they're there. And if, you know, they go without being there, that you check on them. Mm-hmm. There's no guilt. It's just like, hey, we miss seeing you, letting them know that they are missed. And at the same time, I would encourage divorced people to keep showing up. I think it is a I hate to say it, but it can be an excuse at times of not to engage in church because when you walk in, everything you see is all happy, quote unquote, let's say happy families everywhere around you. And that's not what your family looks like anymore. So I think even addressing it in relationship series, mm-hmm. I think talking about blended families, that is the reality of the world we're living in. And um, I think too often the church has said, God hates divorce and I will say to you, you know, divorce isn't what ended my marriage. It was the broken trust and the betrayal and the manipulation and the lying. That's what ended my marriage. And divorce was just um, a response to that. It was an action that actually had to happen in order to continue forward. 
as separate individuals. But the divorce wasn't what ended my marriage. It was the things that happened that led to my divorce. So I think mm-hmm. that I work with women all the time in my coaching who say, I just have so much shame because I know God hates divorce. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, and God hurts that somebody, God hates that someone hurt you as well. Mm-hmm. We need a balance to that, don't we? Yes, we need balance to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good and important for all of us to remember. And honestly, it's part of the reason that I decided I want to do the topic on my podcast because we need to we need to have some conversation around it. So, yeah. yeah. And I th- even to say that, just for clarity's sake, I am pro marriage. Like right. I would love to be in a permanent relationship again one day. I love being a wife. I love having a partner. I like I am pro marriage. So I don't ever, if, you know, both parties are willing to do the work, I, I tell them to definitely continue to seek that out together. Um, You know, I don't think divorce is an end all be all fix everything because all the problems, you know, if you don't repair it, you're going to repeat it in the next relationship you move to. So, Mm -hmm. yep. That is so very, very true. So, Let's talk about just, you know, somebody is listening and maybe they're and they're separated or they're on their way to divorce or they are divorced. And so uh, let's talk about some of the aspects of um, of the reality of what happens in your life after divorce. So let's talk about loneliness. So yeah. there's a big shift. And I experienced this when we were separated. I mean, it's just it is a very lonely time. And if that had been permanent, I can only imagine. So what suggestions do you have for managing loneliness that stems from divorce? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, we have to learn to be okay in our loneliness. I know initially when I got divorced, I filled that void of loneliness with a ton of things, Um, whether it's hitting, you know, lots of yoga classes on the weekends. My my kids are gone every other weekend. I'm a 70-30 split. So um, the weekends they weren't with me. If it's, I'm usually going to yoga. I'm seeing a movie with a friend. I'm meeting somebody else for dinner. Like I packed my schedule out and I got to the point where I realized that I needed to learn to be okay in my loneliness. And that often means we have to get to know ourselves again. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as women, especially, and I'm sure men do this um, at their own level, but we end up taking care of children and spouses and we have jobs and commitments and all of that kind of stuff. And we're giving, 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 and we almost forget who we are and what we like and what we enjoy. And and for me, it was recognizing like, oh, I actually really do enjoy myself. And I like Brandy and I think she's awesome. And I'm okay being at home knowing that I have things I could be doing in this Mm -hmm. moment. However, Mm -hmm. I'm choosing to just take some time and be with myself because there's been a lot going on. And and honestly, I'm kind of an introvert. So I can be okay choosing to be in that loneliness because it means I get to spend time with myself and make sure I'm checking in on how I'm really doing. When Mm -hmm. I am super busy, when all of us are super busy, sometimes we're not in tune with what's going on internally 
And being able to spend that time alone allows us to really evaluate ourselves and what's going on and how we're doing and just take some time to exhale and get to know yourself again. Mm, Wow. So if somebody wanted to take a first stab and they don't even know who they are, yeah, what, you know, what would be a first step for them of uh, like a first step of heading in that direction of exploring what do they like? Because they've lost themselves along the way. Yes, I do a couple of things. I will tell you, I think journaling is huge. Um, I, 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 My stance is I have spent a lot of money on therapy. I will always have a therapist that I am connected with and use on a regular basis. I've done intensives. I would spend every single penny of that money again, Jill. Mm-hmm. And my words are free. And the process of us taking the time to sit down with a paper and pencil and process what is in our head and our heart and putting that on paper is a really great way for you to get to know yourself and evaluate what's going on internally with you. The connection between your brain and your hand on paper actually writing, it does change things. It allows you to see things more clearly. It allows you to dump out negativity that is just kind of bouncing around internally and you need to get rid of. Um, It allows you to be able to bring clarity to your thought process. So I think journaling is huge. And Lots of people don't journal because they feel like it has to be done really well. And I just think stream of conscious writing can help us so much that it is an avenue that is really underused when it comes to us processing our own emotions and beginning to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I did that I talk about in the book, actually, is we had had... um, this is a couple months before resignation, but we had had a really terrible, none of the counseling sessions were good at that point, Jill. Let's just be honest. Right. So when I had another terrible one, they were all pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. But this one, I remember leaving and just weeping because some really hurtful and ugly things were said about me, to me, about me. And I remember going home and just thinking like, he doesn't even know me. None of that stuff is true. So I took out a piece of paper and at the top, I just put what I know to be true about myself. And I started a list of things I knew to be true about myself. And it was stuff like, it sounds very simple, but is kind, is thoughtful, Those are things that contradict what he had told me just a couple of hours earlier, but I knew those things to be true about myself. So I think, man, if you don't know where to start with journaling, take out a piece of paper and just start writing. What do I know to be true about myself? And you Mm -hmm. might have to reflect back to a time, could be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when you were more in touch with yourself before Mm -hmm. life got too busy and maybe you had several kids, but where you can go back and think, well, who was I and what did I enjoy then? When did I feel most like myself? Because I do think we recognize those moments when we think like, oh, I feel like myself in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And just to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Right. I even think, you know, just uh, jotting down, what do I love? Like, what do I love in life? What excites me? What do I get passionate about? I think that's a great place to start. Sometimes people think it has to be a big, complicated answer. And 
you know, last I was doing a meditation this morning and they said, think about something that brings you um, delight. Mm-hmm. And immediately uh, sunsets. Every mm. time I see a sunset, I'm going to stop. I'm going to point it out to my kids yep. and with me. I'm going to take a photo of it. So it's honestly just recognizing things on a daily basis that yes. speak to you. Yes. Yeah. Because the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, nature, flowers. Like I just love flowers. And that was something that, you know, occurred to me several years ago, how much I love them. And I love cut flowers. So I started myself a cut flower garden in our backyard. And I find so much joy in going out and picking a wide range of flowers and putting them in my house. It's like, that's been connecting myself back with who who I am and so I you know I think just becoming aware of that I think is important you know one of mine was um at this time where I was trying to get to know myself again was I love the coziness of candles mm. uh, especially in the fall and winter um but I would buy candles and not burn them <laughs> just set them around so it became the time in my life where I was like I'm, gonna I'm start burning burning candles. And I know it sounds really silly, but it's just like, it is time to start enjoying my life, whether it is, you know, just sitting underneath a blanket, watching a TV show with a candle and the fire going. Yes. That's amazing. That makes me so happy. Yeah. So, so very important. I love that. I love that story. So, um, okay. So we talked about loneliness. Let's talk about grief. Because grief is a big, (laughs) it is big in this journey. What, what have you learned about facing grief? What do you encourage uh, women, anyone who's walking through grief of any sort of loss, but particularly a loss of a marriage? uh, What do, what do they need to know? Yeah, I think, um, I do think grief is huge. And I think too often we just, tie grief to death and that grief is tied to loss of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just the loss of my marriage. It was the loss of the dreams I had for my family. It was the loss of the future that I had dreamed about for me and my partner. Um, it was the loss of what retirement would look like. Yeah. You, you, like there's a lot of loss um, that occurs. And I think for me, I kept thinking like, Surely this grief is going to get smaller. Surely Mm. this grief is going to get tinier. Um, And I think what I finally recognized is that often when we are dealing with grief, we expect that grief to get smaller. And what actually happens is the grief, like, let's say, stays the same size. Grief cannot necessarily be measured, but if it's represented by a ball, it stays the same size. It's the size of an orange. And I keep thinking it's going to shrink to like a ping pong ball size. Mm-hmm. Instead, it stays the size of the orange. What actually grows is me as I'm mm. dealing with grief. So you have to be able to feel and acknowledge your grief. Um, and whether that is you writing about it, you sharing with a friend about it, I think so often I fought back tears when I just needed to let them fall. Right. And I would feel a lot better if I allowed myself to, and I have had, um, a recent time I was walking through something and I legitimately remember getting up that morning, doing my journaling, still not feeling like myself. I knew, you know, the tears were kind of close and I thought, 
I'm going to set my alarm and I'm going to let myself cry until nine o'clock. And then at nine o'clock, I have to hop in the shower and start getting ready for work today. And, and it sounds so silly, but it's like I needed to be able to release what was going on inside of me. So by mm-hmm. saying like, you know what, Brandy, you have some time to give to yourself today and grieve. I allowed myself to do it. And by doing it, I was able to move on. So I think, man, when you feel those tears, let them fall. Let mm-hmm. them come. Yeah. Uh, don't stuff them down. No, no. And uh, because they're go- they're going to leak out. They're going to leak out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like you really can't stuff them because and they may leak out not in tears. They may leak out in uh, anger. They may leak out in, emo- you know, other emotions. And then when they leak out, they get they get all over other people unintentionally. Yes. 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 I think it is. Um, Jim Chris, who's a therapist that mm-hmm. says if your reaction is hysterical, it's historical. Mm-hmm. And I think when you don't process that grief and it does leak out in a way that is maybe considered extreme, you have to think like, what does that go back to? Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you, because I also think it's really important for support people to kind of know how to love someone walking through a divorce or the end of their marriage well. And one of the biggest gifts I received from, you know, my closest friends is they gave me the time I needed to grieve. And I think when we love someone because we love them, we hate to see them hurt at times and thinking we're doing a good thing. We want to move them through their grief. Yep. Rather letting them take the time they need to grieve. Yeah. And I remember my girlfriend, Lori, who's my best friend, and we also worked together at Leading and Loving It. Um, she had given me a, a writing idea that I actually still love and should chase at some point. Um, and and I'd probably been divorced about two years. And it was kind of about grief and how to walk through that and, and the emotions you experience. And I sat down to do it for a couple of weeks and I just couldn't. And I remember calling her and just saying, I don't think I'm ready to do this yet. And she said, Mm -hmm. okay, at one point you'll probably be ready. Um, She didn't push me No one ever told me I should be over it. No, you know, Um, they always were aware and gave me options of, you know, Hey, do you want to come out to dinner? Do you want me to bring dinner over? But I never, ever felt like they were tired of hearing about what I was feeling. So I think, man, when we give the people we love time to process grief, that's truly a gift to them. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think we often, you know, when we're with someone who is grieving, we we too often jump in and offer platitudes. Like yeah. it's going to get better. And But sometimes we just need to sit in pain with them. Yes. And, and not offer anything but a hug. Yes. Or reaching out across the table and just grabbing their hand and letting them know you're not alone. Yeah. And that is, I remember during our dark season um, when we were separated, I had a girlfriend, well, a, a girlfriend that came and stayed with me for three nights after my husband left. And the first night I was just crying like at night. And I thought I was, she was in the guest room across the hallway. I thought I was being quiet. Yeah. But I guess I wasn't as quiet as I thought. And I, I heard the door open and I heard her slide into the room and she actually slid into the bed Mm. and just held me. Yeah. 
there were no words, mm-hmm. no words. Yep. And then I calmed down in time and she slipped out of the bedroom and went back to her bed. Yeah. No, wor- no words were ever spoken. And it's yeah. probably, I mean, it, it brings tears to my eyes yeah. today to still think about that. Yeah. It was so powerful. So I think oftentimes we overestimate yeah. the, the need for words and yeah. we touch presence, uh, just being with someone, letting them know they're not alone. It's powerful. It is powerful. And I, I think, um, when it comes to words, don't be afraid to use, I love you. Mm. I had a neighbor who, gosh, once a week, she left a flower with a note or she left a candle or she, some little like gift, but it always said, Aww. I love you on it. And it's nice to hear those words when the person who is supposed to love you the most left. Right. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful gift that was. So Brandy, talk about, you know, sometimes when you're walking through something like this, you have really dark days. Where do you find your strength? Where does that strength come from on the darkest of the days? Yeah. um, Gosh, that really is such a great question. And I have to say, you know, my strength came from God. I, I really and truly poured everything out to him. I think the way my world shrunk from thousands of people to three people um, in an instant, mm-hmm. I just didn't feel safe talking to a lot of people. And I had a lot of things I was processing. Um, and we talk a lot if in parenting and then adult relationships about attachment, mm-hmm. attachment theory. It's called bonding science. And I can look back now and realize that what my divorce gave me in terms of my relationship with God is it allowed me to create a secure attachment Mm. because I went to him with everything. I went when I was angry. I went when there are words that I probably shouldn't be saying out loud. I went to him with disappointment. I went to him begging. I went to him um, when I felt loved and acknowledged that as well. I went to him when I, you know, had something happen that felt good, that felt like a little hopeful for the future. So I think the fact that I continued to show up really helped me develop this secure attachment that I'd never had in my marriage. Um, I had more of an anxious attachment and I was able to develop this security and safety with God that I'd never felt before. And, mm. and part of it was because I was, you know, the pastor's wife at a really large church. So I always felt like I had to have the right answer and the right response. And I had to say what people needed. And at this point, I was just going to God because I needed him. Mm-hmm. Not because I represented an organization or I was married to and riding the coattails of some successful pastor, but because I needed him mm-hmm. and I felt safe to continue to go to him. Um, so that was honestly my lifeline. I I prayed, I begged, I screamed, um, but God was definitely my strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you mentioned attachment. I think that that was probably the biggest thing that came out of our dark season is we learned about attachment Mm -hmm. and um, we had the anxious avoidant. I was avoidant and my husband was anxious uh, dance. And now we are secure, secure. And, um, but that takes, that takes personal work. um, And 
uh, it has to be founded in Jesus Christ. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Think, you know, moving into my next relationship, having had this secure attachment, yes. God is going to change what that relationship looks like down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we bring things to a close, one more question. Um, what wisdom would you offer to parents who want to minimize the impact of divorce on their children's hearts? Because I know as a mother that had to be, you know, that's part of big part of why you also were standing for your, your marriage and not wanting it to end in divorce because of the effect on your kids. I know that was a big part for me as well, but um, talk about what you have learned, what wisdom would you offer to someone who's going through it that you uh, want them to know? Yeah, I think um, the importance of doing your own work. Um, I did an intensive at onsite and one of the therapists there said it was about a year after my divorce. He said, your child's resilience is directly impacted by the parent's ability to own their story, understand their story and communicate their story. And I think so often we go to, you know, it's like you have to put on your air mask first, your oxygen mask first, if you're on a plane. Um, It's like you have to emotionally be willing to take care of yourself first. And that directly directly impacts your kids when they see your health um, and how you're handling things. Kids will always gravitate toward the healthy parent because they see that health and that's where they feel safest. So I think the importance of doing your own work is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would say you just lean on God because you might be a single parent, but you're not parenting alone. Um, I had to remind myself over and over again that God loves my kids more than I did. I actually tell the story in the book of reading in Joshua one day about the Israelites coming um, to the Jordan River and it's at flood stage and all they have to do is cross the Jordan River and they get to the promised land, which is what they've been wandering around waiting for for 40 years. But the river's at flood stage and um, they actually, Joshua tells the priest who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant to come to the beginning of the line. So the priests come And he tells them to begin to cross. And as soon as the first foot of the first priest enters the Jordan River, the water piles up in a heap. And the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they walk to the middle of the Jordan River and they stand on dry, solid ground. Why all of the Israelites, all of Israel passes by them to the promised land. And I think when I read, I'd read that scripture so many times through the years. And when I take that scripture and I kind of overlay my parenting, I believed it was my job to do it all. So I believe like Mm -hmm. I have to carry the Ark of the Covenant. I have to be the one to take the first step in the water. I have to be the one to hold back the water to protect. I have to be the one to cross across the river. I have to be the one who leads them into the promised land. And I was having a quiet, my quiet time with God that day and just like processing how overwhelmed I was with the spiritual leadership that I now needed to carry for my family. Mm -hmm. And God just legitimately, I felt like I've, not necessarily heard him out loud, but this is as close as I've come. He said, you're doing things that aren't your job. Mm, and so and good. I just saw it differently because he said, you know what? It's my job 
to carry the Ark of the Covenant. It's my job to be the one to take the first step. It's my job to hold back the waters of protection for your kids. It's my job to lead your kids across the Jordan. It's my job to deliver your kids to the promises I have for their lives. Your job is to have a relationship with me. Your job is to stand on that dry, solid ground and love me well and show your kids what it's like to have a relationship with me, to allow them to see you engage in that relationship. Your job is to hold my kingdom. Mm. And at that point, I was like, oh, well, that I can do. Um, And I think there's this reality of we talk a lot about, you know, God can take our pain and use it for purpose, that nothing is wasted. And I have seen that in my own life. I have seen God take my pain and use it for purpose. And I think as parents, when it comes to divorce, any other difficulty our kids are walking through, we have to depend on God to do His will for their lives. So if I believe He's going to turn my pain into purpose, I have to also believe he's going to do that in my kid's life in regards to divorce being part of their story. Yeah. Oh, that's such good wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think that that will speak to um, many who will listen to this. So the name of the book is Better Than Okay, Finding Hope and Healing After Your Marriage Ends. We will put a link to the book in the show notes. Are there any other resources that you recommend for women who are facing divorce, going through divorce uh, as well? Yeah, I have a whole list um, of books I read in the back of my book, kind of like my little lifelines. Um, One of them is a book by Henry Nowen called The Inner Voice of Love. I think it is so great when you're processing grief. It's um, really wonderful when it comes to learning to love yourself again and engage in that healthy relationship with God. Um, I, you know, I am not a theologian. And when someone recommended it to me, I was like, oh, I like Henry Nowen, but sometimes, you know, it can but be it was good. And it's excellent. It's actually journal entries of his. Mm. So that Inner Voice of Love by Henry Nowen is excellent. Um, I also loved The Body Keeps Score, Mm -hmm. just to talk about how our body responds to trauma um, and the importance of dealing with what we've experienced rather than holding that in. Um, I... Lisa Turkhurst has a series on therapy and theology about divorce and the Bible. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who says to me in coaching the whole like God hates divorce, I'm like, yes, I'm actually going to send you a podcast I want you to listen to because I think there are two or three of them where she talks about divorce um, with her therapist and with her theologian. So it's the Bible therapy together, which is wonderful. But um, that series is also really excellent. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, And Elisa's uh, Good Boundaries and Goodbyes is also good. And uh, for those of you that haven't, aren't familiar with it, I I interviewed Lisa a couple months ago. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, And we'll link all of those books that Brandy just mentioned along with hers. And um, Brandy, how do people find you if they want to coach with you? How do they connect to you? I am. I can be found at lovebrandywilson.com, Brandy with an I. And then on Instagram, I am lovebrandywilson as well and can definitely be found there and on Facebook. 
Okay, wonderful. We'll put uh, those links in the show notes as well. Brandy, would you be willing to close us out in prayer and just to pray for those that are listening and um, are in transition in their life? Yeah, for sure. God, we just come before you now and we want to pray for the people who are walking through stories that feel hopeless, God, Um, whether you know, they're uncovering something in their marriage, whether they're separated, walking through a divorce, maybe recently divorced, and just trying to figure out what life looks like. Um, I know they have more questions than answers, God. And I just want to ask that you bring them peace um, and you allow them to feel your love. I think um, you are the one who can provide security and safety, God. And you are the one who can remind them that they might be a single parent, but they are not parenting alone. And I just want to ask that you allow them to feel like your arms are wrapped around them. And as they're making tough decisions and they're figuring out this new life, that you will just give them wisdom Mm -hmm. um, and that you will show up in ways that they never expected, God, that you will just allow them to know that you are with them. Mm -hmm. Um, If they are battling loneliness, allow them to feel your love, give them um, give them the courage to also reach out to people so that they don't have to be alone. Give them the courage to show up at church or meet a friend for dinner um, so that they can also have some interaction that is life-giving in their lives, God. And I just want to ask for those people. I know there are people out there who are praying for truth like I I, I did at one time in my life. And I just want to ask that you give them the truth in your timing, God, and that they realize that your timing is always perfect. God, just be with those hurting hearts and those people who are weeping and can't sleep at night and feel so abandoned and rejected that you will just allow them to feel your love in a way that they've never felt before. Mm-hmm. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me today on the No More Perfect Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future conversations. You can find the show notes and links to anything we talked about over on jillsavage.org slash podcast. I hang out on Facebook and Instagram and would love to connect with you there. You can find me under the name jillsavage.author. One more thing, we have three free eBooks that we'd love to give you. You can find them at jillsavage.org slash free. See you next week where we'll have another conversation about the real stuff of life and relationships.